Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight. As we study God's Word together, Zechariah chapter 10 is where we are. And as we realized a couple of weeks ago, 9 through 11 is a completely different section than 1 through 8. And then 12 through 14, the chapters are different as well. And so tonight we will be in chapter 10, a new day for God's people. And we're glad that you're here to study God's Word with us. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you also, wherever you are and however you may be joining us. Glad that you have uh, joined us for the Bible study as well. One note before we uh, pray and begin our uh, our study every five years at First Baptist Church, we revise our job description, or not job descriptions, Constitution and bylaws, uh, if they need it. And so we had a team together, a committee to look into that. And so we have made a few revisions, nothing major. Most of them are very minor revisions, but um, we did make a few minor revisions, and those will be uh, online tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, you can read the Constitution bylaws and see what highlighted in yellow what the changes are. And then we will be having two town hall meetings to discuss that uh, May the tw- 24th and May the 31st, both Wednesday nights after our Bible study at 7 o'clock in Fellowship Hall. And then we'll vote on our new Constitution and bylaws with the revisions on July the 3rd, which is our regular scheduled business meeting. Uh, so have to announce that twice to you, so we'll do that today and Sunday, and then we'll have on the 24th will be our town hall meeting for the Constitution and Bylaws. All right, let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. Lord, your word is life, your word is truth, and we pray that you'd open it tonight. God, what you told your people through Zechariah to bring encouragement to them about how you blessed them as, as Je- with Jesus the Messiah. And God, we've been blessed as well. And so tonight, would you open up our hearts and minds. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 10 tonight. I have some bad news for you. We're, we're not going to have a quiz tonight. I know, I knew you'd be disappointed. I know, we, we've got a lot of material to get to, but I knew you'd be disappointed. Okay, one question. What does the name Zechariah mean? God remembers. Yahweh remembers. Okay, everybody gets a hundred. So there we go. So there's our quiz, and everybody makes a hundred. So all right, we will get started in chapter 10, verse 1. First of all, before we get to letter A on the outline and look at chapter 9 briefly, what we looked at last week, let me give you a background of Israel's history because tonight's passage is going to make a lot more sense if I do. So some of you may know this, some of you may not, but this is a background of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, which makes makes the passage make a whole lot more sense. So Israel, one country, after Solomon, there's David and then there's Solomon, after Solomon's reign, they had a civil war, like we did in the United States, and they divided up into the north and the south, and they stayed that way for the remainder of the Old Testament. So about halfway through the Old Testament, the Civil War happens, divide up into two sections. They're still called Israel, but two sections, the north and the south, and it remains that way. The north, ten tribes, and the south, two tribes. So the twelve tribes of Israel, ten of them in the north, two of them in the south. The northern part of Israel was called Israel, and the southern part of Israel was called Judah. Because primarily the tribe of Judah was in the southern portion. So, divided up north and south. God's people continued to sin. They turned to idol worship, uh, primarily worshiping idols. 
God sent prophets to tell them because of your sinfulness you need to repent or judgment's going to happen. And judgment is going to come in the form of another nation coming in, destroying your land, killing some of you, and taking the rest of you away to live as slaves, as captives. They didn't believe the prophets. In fact, they would kill the prophets. You don't like the message? Kill the messenger. So they kill the prophets often. And so they didn't believe them, didn't repent, and sure enough, it happened. 722 B.C., Assyria, under the able leadership of Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser V, came marching down from the north. If you march down from the north, what's the first part of Israel you're going to come to? The north. So they invaded the northern section exactly like, uh, like God said that they would, captured everything, burned everything, killed a lot of Israelites and took the rest of them back to live as captives in Assyria. That was the northern portion. But here's something interesting. As Assyria is marching down from the north into Israel, they got to the border of the southern part, Judah, and they stopped. They got word back in Assyria that another nation had attacked them on the home front. They're going to Hollis, take all of our troops, and rush back home to defend our home territory. So they stopped at the border of Judah, turned around, and went back to Assyria. Well, so now the northern part of Israel is destroyed. The only portion that's left is the south. What does the south think? God loves us more than the north because the army stopped at our border and left. So... God loves us more than the north, so judgment's not coming to us. And they reasoned, the reason that they stopped at the border was because Jerusalem's in the south, and that's God's holy city, and he'll not anything, let anything bad happen in Jerusalem. And second of all, the temple is there in Jerusalem in the south. God would never let anything happen to the temple. So in their minds, they're thinking, we're safe. We can do what we want. We can sin as much as we want. We can do what doesn't matter because we are safe. We are in the south, and God would never let anything happen to the south. Well, they were wrong in thinking that. So God sent more prophets to the southern kingdom that prophesied that said, Look, just because you're in the south, God will invade you if you don't turn around. He'll let another nation come in and destroy you. And just because the temple's here, God will destroy the temple and he'll destroy the city of Jerusalem if you don't turn. It's going to happen. You need to turn. And they didn't believe the prophets. And they killed the prophets, just like the north. And this went on for 136 years. The south thinking, we're free, we're safe, and do what we want. But sure enough, it happened. 586 B.C., the Babylonians, who are now in charge, they marched across northern Israel, which is no longer occupied by anybody. They get to the south, and they literally just mow down everything. This, the temple, burn it. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They burn it. And as you know, they carried them away to Babylonian captivity. So now all 12 tribes of Israel are gone. The 10 in the north and the 2 in the south. Now, tonight's passage is God's promise that in the last days when the world is about to end, God is going to regather the 10 tribes of the north and the 2 tribes of the south. He's going to regather them and bring them back to the homeland of Israel.
all ten tribes in the north and both of the tribes from the south. He's going to regather them again in the country of Israel. Now, whenever the ten tribes from the north were conquered, where did they go? Well, they went to Assyria, and some of them went to other countries and fled as refugees, but primarily they ceased to exist. The ten tribes of Israel were no more. The two that stayed intact, they went in the south, they went to Babylon, and they came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt. But the ten tribes ceased to exist. They were no more. So maybe you have heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel. If you've heard of that, that's what they're referring to. The ten tribes in the north that just assimilated into other people groups and they were no more. If they are no more, how's God going to regather them? Well, that's what we'll talk a little bit about tonight and next week. Now, what happened to the ten tribes of Israel? There are a lot of theories out there. One theory is those ten tribes of the north intermarried after Assyria came back to the homeland and resettled as the Samaritans. So intermarried with, the, with other people groups, therefore the Jews hated them severely because they were not purebred Jews, they were half-breeds, and because of that they hated them. And so that's why the Samaritans and the Jews had the controversy in the New Testament. That's one theory. Another theory is, it's the most, probably the most common theory, and that is that they resettle in other parts of the world. There's a people group from Africa that they say they are descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a people group in China that says, no, we're the, from, descended from the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 tribes of Israel. A group in Japan that says that. A group in India says that. A group in Afghanistan says that. The, Kurdis, the Kurds in Kurdistan, they say we're descendants of the 10 tribes of, of Israel. Uh, Yemen, there's a group in Yemen that they claim, no, we're from the 10 tribes of Israel from the north. The Mormons believe that Native Americans in America, the ten tribes of Israel from the north, that they came across the ocean and they resettled here in America, and before Christopher Columbus got here, that they were the ones, the Native Americans were the ten lost tribes. Some people believe Anglos are from the ten lost tribes of Israel from the north, that the Anglos of the U.S., and the Anglos of Great Britain are from the, they are the descendants, they are the ten tribes. Not any kind of proof on any of this, but there are theories. And, but most people believe they were just absorbed into different people groups and they're just scattered all over. God has promised to bring them back. So knowing that history makes chapter 10 make a lot more sense. In the last days when the world is just about to end. God's going to bring back from Israel all the people groups and put them in, once again, the land of Israel. Now look at chapter 9, letter A on your outline. This is from last week. If you remember, we talked about the blessings that would happen when the new king came and the new king's the Messiah. That's Jesus. So chapter 9 talked about the king, Messiah, to come and the blessings on the land that would follow Chapter 10 tonight talks about the people of the land 
and their blessings because the Messiah is here. Chapter 9, last week we saw that the Messiah would suffer and be pierced. And, and, and then in verse 10, he would come and reign victorious over the nations. And so chapter 10 follows that up just a little bit. Now, before we get to our passage tonight, one more thing. There, the, the prophecy that the, the tribes of Israel will come back to Israel and resettle in there again is already starting to be fulfilled, by the way. Jews are returning back to Israel now in droves. There have been three million Jews returned back to Israel to the homeland to live since 1948. That's when Israel became a nation again. So there are people groups that are migrating back to Israel. Even as we speak tonight, the airports, the airport there is full of people, of Jews, going back to their homeland to live. You see pictures on the internet of Jews getting off the airplane and kissing the ground, of, of dancing around, of stopping and praising the Lord, and right there in the airport. Every time you go to the airport, you see scenes like this. In fact, whenever we fly over to Israel and we land in Tel Aviv, whenever we land, it's not uncommon to hear applause on the airplane. Well, it's, that's not because the plane landed safely. It's because the Jews are home. They're back home. It really is a big deal. So they are going back in droves, and this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and 10. Jewish immigration is up 31% this past year over the previous year. It's called the Aliyah, when Hebrew means return. So they're returning back to their homeland. So you'll see a lot of articles if you read Jerusalem Post or any other publications about the Aliyah, people going back. They call it going up. If a Jew says, I'm going up, that means they get to go back home to Jerusalem. If they say, I'm going down, means they're leaving Jerusalem. So Israel really is that important to them. Now here's what's important, what's interesting. Do you know where they're coming from to go back? Russia is the number one country. The number two country is the U.S. Jews are leaving the U.S. to go back to Israel to live in waves. Third country is France. Fourth is Ukraine, Belarus, Argentina, the UK, Brazil, South Africa, and Ethiopia. Top ten nations that are receiving immigrants back to Jewish immigrants going back to Israel to live. Here's what else is interesting. Most of them are young, under 35. A large majority of them are 18 to 29. So the ones going back are the young ones. You remember whenever we talked a couple of weeks ago about the ones that went back in, 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 to, in Israel to rebuild the land? It was the old ones. But the ones going back now are the young ones. Why are they going? Several reasons. There's a promise of a better life there than the countries they're in. Second of all, medical care uh, is the best in Israel than anywhere else in the world. Uh, technology, they're going for technology. It's the high-tech center of, of, of really the world there at Tel Aviv. But another reason they're going is persecution. Jews are being persecuted around the world in great numbers. So a lot of them are escaping persecution and going back home. And the Israeli government tonight, I just read an article before we came in here, 
the government of the Israeli government is worried that the land is not going to be able to hold all the Jews who are returning home. They're worried they won't have enough resources for everybody to get there. One of the passages tonight refers to that. So, with all that background, it will make chapter 10 make a lot more sense. So, let's begin reading chapter 10, Blessings of the King's People. First of all, verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. Now, this verse kind of stands alone, so let me talk about it just for a moment. God promised as a part of the blessing on Israel that the rains would come. You and I pretty well take for granted that rain is eventually going to come up on our land. They do not take that for granted in Israel. Israel uh, is uh, hot and dry. The summers are long and hot and dry. And at the end of the summer, they pray rain comes. It doesn't always, but they pray that it will. They call it the the former rain. The former rain is the rain that comes in the fall. The latter rain is the rain that comes in the spring before the summer hits. So they pray every summer that the, that the former rains will come. Because in this day, Israel had no irrigation system. Now they do today. They can catch and they can harness the rain now. They couldn't then. No irrigation system. No other sources of water. So they relied on rain to water their crops. If the rain did not come, nothing grew, and they starved. So it was a delicate balance. If the rain came all at once, it flooded everything, and they, they caught a little bit of it in the cisterns, but not much. That wasn't any, any good. They didn't need it to come all at once. They didn't need it not to come. They needed the rains to come slowly and consistently, and rain was a symbol of blessing and favor in the Old Testament. So God's promise is, I'm going to send rain upon you consistently because I will bless my people in the days to come. Now, the Canaanites, they owned the land of Israel before the Israelites. And the Canaanites also recognized the role of rains and how important they were for the crops. So they believed we need to worship the God of rain more than any of the other gods. So they did. The, rain, the God of rain in, Can in the Canaanite religion was Baal. The God of rain and the God of fertility. That's why Baal was such a big deal in the Old Testament. Because the Canaanites, we've got to have the water to live. So they worshipped and held these elaborate rituals by which they would try to appease Baal so the rains would come. Well, the Israelites show up and they go, no, no, Baal's not the God of rain. Yahweh is. He's the God of everything. Just believe in Yahweh and pray to Yahweh and the rains will come. Well, the Canaanites go, well, no, well, wait a minute, Baal's the God of rain. And so there immediately becomes a competition between Yahweh and Baal. Therefore, the background of 1 Kings 18. Elijah, the prophets of Baal, meeting on Mount Carmel because it hadn't rained in three and a half years, and saying, who's going to send the, who's the only true and living God, send the, the sacrifice that will light the sacrifice, and then God sent the rain to show he's the God of rain, not Baal. So you kind of get the background. So 
It was important for God's people to recognize God as the source of all good things and primarily the source of the rains and the source of life. You know that the test of any people's true worship is found, who do you trust in the essentials of life? And who do you trust in the catastrophes of life? Who or what do you trust? In God's people, he says, you are to trust me. Ask for rain and I'll send showers of blessing. So that's the, that's the background to verse 1. Now let's go to verse 2, the sheep of his pasture, verses 2 through 12. The rest of the passage, he's talking about how you are the sheep of my pasture. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he addresses the southern portion of Israel, Judah. And then verses 5 to 12, he addresses the north, the ten tribes of, of, of Israel and how he's going to bring them all together. So let's look. Verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people will wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Now, before God's people went away to captivity, you might remember, they worshiped the other gods. And, and, and God is saying, all of those other gods you're, you have worshipped in the past are nothing. The, the teraphim, the household gods, small little idols everybody had in their house to worship to make sure good things happened. And then the diviners, those were the fortune tellers. They predicted the future. We would know them as psychics today or fortune tellers. They would contact the spirits of the idols to try to predict the future. And God said, you don't, you're, you're a people who has a God. You don't need to do that. And then they also believed in what were called dreamers. The dreamers were those people who would see dreams and interpret what they meant and somehow predict the future. And God's saying, don't turn to those kind of things. You can trust me. Those, that, that is worthless comfort. They're of no help at all. And those people who rely upon those things will be shepherdless sheep. And you'll have nothing but trouble. Folks, those people today who go to psychics and mediums and fortune tellers and assume that mankind can, can solve any problem on his own, those go directly against what Yahweh promised his people here. They produce a false faith. And people who trust in magic and fortune telling and psychics lose their capacity to place personal faith in God. So, he may be referring to the time of Manasseh when that happened in the 8th century. So, what he's saying is, it's happened in the past. Don't trust mediums and fortune tellers. If you do, you're going to be shepherdless sheep. But if you trust me, the great shepherd, I will direct you. Verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds. And I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, that's the southern portion, and will make them like his magic steed in battle. So what he's saying was, all those people that I sent you that should have been shepherds of my people, 
those kings I sent you and, and, and uh, the, the, the princes I sent you and the rulers I sent you and the prophets I sent you and the priests I sent you. They should have been shepherds to you people. But they were shepherds who didn't do their jobs. They turned you away from me to these worthless idols around here. And my anger is hot against you. So God's talking about a time in the past, past tense is used here, when that would have happened. And God is saying, I will visit my flock and I will make you, once again, in the last days, strong, not weak. Those old shepherds are gone. Now the Messiah has come, who is your great shepherd. And I will change you from shepherdless sheep, wandering around, being defeated, to powerful War horses, the majestic steed in battle. God's saying, I'll transform you from helpless sheep into war horses. The weak sheep would become as strong as them. Now, is this talking about Armageddon at the last time? Maybe. It's what some people believe. It's kind of hard to know through chapter 10 what is a reference to the millennium and what's a reference to Armageddon and what's a reference to the end times because... There's the past tense used, there's a present tense used, there's a future tense used, and there's the perfect tense used, and they're all used interchangeably. So it gets a little confusing, but it appears he's talking about in Armageddon, at the last battle, at the final end of the world, God's going to make his people, the Israelites, reconvened as 12 tribes, not shepherdless sheep anymore, but strong war horses that the nations can't defeat. We've already talked about that in Revelation just a little bit. Let's go to chapter, I mean, verse 4. From him, talking about God and the, and the Messiah, shall come the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them together. So it's talking about the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus will be the cornerstone. What did Paul call Jesus? The cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected, God has made the chief cornerstone. So that was fulfilled in Christ. Then he said the Messiah would also be like a tent peg. What does a tent peg do? It holds the tent firmly in place. That's the word picture here. The Messiah is going to hold the kingdom firmly in place. By the way, whenever the Israelites lived in tents, the tent peg would usually be something that they would adorn. Uh, the tent peg was, of course, what kept the, the tent in place, firmly in place. And so they would, they would adorn it. They would hang beautiful ornaments on it to beautify their homes. The tent peg became something that was a centerpiece uh, that they would adorn in, their, in their, their tent homes. And so the tent peg has a history going all the way back in Judaism. And now Jesus is going to be the tent peg that holds everything together. And then the Messiah would be the battle bow by which God would destroy the enemies. Very clear picture of the end times. Because of the Messiah, every oppressor will depart from Judah... And Judah will be free. Now, put yourself in their place. Zechariah is telling this to you. 
you're one of those old captives that came from Babylon. You made the 1,200-mile trip back, and you're there working with your hands, and you're trying to just best you can to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city, and you're mostly elderly, and all the young people stayed back there, and so you're out of strength and energy, and you don't know if it's going to get done or not. And Zechariah shows up to try to encourage you. What would it mean to you if he said, there's coming a day when the Messiah is going to show up in this very land and every oppressor you've ever had is going to be gone? What oppressors have they had? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they had known nothing but oppression for hundreds of years. You're going to go, yes, I can't wait for that day. And that's why they greatly look forward to the Messiah. Now think about this. You can see why the Israelites pictured a military Messiah, couldn't you? I mean, look at the imagery. He's going to defeat them in battle, and he's going to kick the enemies out, and he's going to rule, and he's going to be victorious. So in your mind, as a Jew, you're thinking, he's going to be a military conqueror. And Jesus shows up, and he's meek, and he's destroyed, and he's crucified, and you're going, whoa, wait a minute, he can't be the Messiah. So sometimes we get on the Jews about how come you didn't recognize the Messiah when he came? Because this is the imagery they're having when he comes. The military commander who's once again going to restore the land and he's going to conquer and we're going to be free. Because they longed for it. Verse 5. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Don't you know those old Jews said, I can't wait for that day to come when our enemies are mud in the streets, and we're like powerful horses, and we'll put shame to the riders. Long for that day. The Israelites would be like mighty men in battle. Their enemy would fight from positions of strength, but God's people would be victorious, and the Lord's infantry would defeat the world's superior cavalry. Boy, that had to mean a lot to them, and they couldn't wait for that day. So they're probably saying to Zechariah, amen, when he's preaching this. Look at verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. The word strengthen there, by the way, means warrior. And I will save the house of Joseph. Okay, hold on. Wait a second. Verse 6, we have a shift. Who's Joseph? It's the north. So the promise is not just to the south in those two tribes. Now, verses 6 through 12, the promise is to Joseph, the ten tribes of the north that are scattered where God knows only, only knows where they are. But he says, I'm going to bring them back. I will save the house of Joseph, the north. And I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Wow. If you're an Israelite back in 722 and you're scattered all over the world and you think God has forgotten me and he brings one last restoration of the northern kingdom back into your mind, he would do this simply because he had compassion on them, not because they deserved the blessing, but he would restore them to the land, the blessings they enjoyed before they were even destroyed and taken into captivity. He would do so because God would answer their prayers, he said. So evidently, those ten tribes scattered everywhere around the world will be praying, oh dear God, 
somehow restore our land again. So when it happened in 1948, that's when it brought hope to the Israel. And now those ten tribes from the north are starting to be coming back and this being fulfilled. Verse 7. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. Who's Ephraim? Well, he's referring to the north. But you know why I call him Ephraim? Ephraim was one of the tribes, one of those ten. But Ephraim was God's pet name for the north. You know, you have pet names for people that are very dear to you. You may call them honey or maybe you had a pet name for your kids or something like that when they were growing up. And it was endearing because they were close to you. Ephraim was God's pet name for Israel, the book through the book of Hosea. And here again, he calls them Ephraim. Don't you know what that must have been for a child, maybe deserted from their parent, years and years and years, and then they, then they hear their, that name, their pet name called again, and they see their parent again. That's what happens in verse 7. Then Ephraim will be like a warrior. And their hearts will be glad as with wine. And their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Notice how the word glad is used or rejoice three times in one verse. Because God is saying your defeat and your weakness and your discouragement right now in the land is going to be replaced with joy. And the idols you worshipped in times past will be gone. Notice in verse 7, he says, I will strengthen you and help you to win the battle. He did not say, I'll remove the battle from you. Sometimes we want God just to remove the battle. And sometimes you have to fight the battle, but God gives you the strength to fight it. Here, they were going to have to fight the battle. But I'll strengthen you. And that may be with you. Maybe you're praying to get out of the battle. But maybe it's God's will you go through the battle. But he strengthened you. In the midst of it. Verse 8. I will whistle for them. And gather them in. For I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many. As they were before. This is the north. I'll whistle for them. What was the imagery? It's the imagery of the shepherd whistling for the sheep. And the sheep hearing the whistle that they recognize. And coming to follow the shepherd. You see it in Israel all the time. Whistle. And the sheep come. And that's the picture. I will whistle for you. You're scattered across the world. Nobody knows where you are. I'll just whistle. And you'll come running. And I will redeem you. And it will be as if you had never even left. God had promised to gather his people all through the Old Testament. Promises repeated often in the prophecies of the New Covenant. Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, God promises over and over, even though you're scattered as the nations, you're going to come back and you will be as numerous as the days of your prosperity. What did I tell you earlier tonight that the Israeli government's afraid of? They won't have enough land for them. And here he says, you'll be as numerous as you were before. They're right. The land's going to be full of Jews by the time the world ends. Verse 9, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember 
me. What does the name Zechariah mean? Y'all remembers. Remember seems to be a key word through this book, doesn't it? Because it's Zechariah's name. Now he says, I'll gather you because you remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. Sowing and reaping are symbols of hope and blessing. Not only will God remember them, they will remember him. Look at verse 10. I'll bring them home in the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room left for them. What are they, what's the Israeli government worried about? Till there's no room left. Why did he say Egypt and Assyria? I'll gather you from Egypt, gather you from Assyria. Remember, Egypt's in the south, as far as you can go south. Assyria's as far as you can go north. Those were the two most persistent enemies Israel knew throughout their entire history. And so those are kind of symbolic of all the nations that will ever come against you. I will bring you home from all those nations. Gilead was a rich, fertile land. Lebanon, the tall trees. And so he's saying, I'm going to bring you to a luscious land. But what they were looking at right then was a land that was charred and rubble and nothing there. And God's saying it's not going to be like that anymore. And sure enough, you go to Israel today, it's a land that's rich and fertile and trees and beautiful. And God has restored it. Verse 11. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So it's the imagery of what? The Red Sea crossing. It's the imagery of the Exodus. What happened in the Exodus? God's people in bondage went across on dry ground, and their freedom. What's going to happen at the end of the world? God's going to release his people from bondage, and they're going to be free. And then verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. The Messiah will strengthen the Israelites, and they'll exercise dominion over the world in his name Folks, this is the promise of the Messiah. And this is the promise that was not just fulfilled immediately. It will be fulfilled at the end times. And already we're starting to see the fulfillment of people coming back to Israel. And a land once again teeming with people from the ten tribes of the north. Wow, it's powerful. You look at the news. You read the news. And you read chapter 10 of Zechariah, and it's exactly being fulfilled in Israel now. Next week, we'll go to uh, chapter 11, and that'll end that section, and we'll pick up 12 through 14 to conclude. Any questions or comments that you may have, uh, some of this might have been confusing tonight, feel free to see me afterwards or, or, uh, see, or email me and be glad to, to address those. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, thank you tonight for your goodness and your love. Thank you, God, that you're a God of promises. If you said it, we can count on it. And so, Lord, tonight, there, there may be some among us that are discouraged, different things going on. Help them, God, to realize that, that you will strengthen them in the battle, that you can be depended upon, and your promises are sure. Thank you, Lord, already you're starting to fulfill those, and you'll ultimately fulfill them 
the very end of the world. And we thank you for that. Thank you for being the kind of God that you are. And it's our confession tonight that you're the only true and living God. And Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with you. Thank you that the Messiah has come. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.